Good evening. It's been about a year now, I think, I was working out, maybe a little less, that I had this opportunity to exhort from uh, the evening service. I know it, it has been quite a long time, probably too long uh, on my behalf, but I'm always grateful for the opportunity to, to do this. It's, it's difficult. I'm, I'm sure I'm a man of few words, generally speaking, so to draw this out is always a wonderful exercise. And, and God's love and care for me, and uh, it's very important that he stretches me uh, in this way to grow me, and uh, so I, I trust it'll be a blessing for you as well, and uh, it also helps me to be very grateful for the men that do this uh, week in and week out, right? I mean, I couldn't imagine. Um, their gifts are definitely uh, before us, and I'm very grateful even more so after going through this process. Um, so tonight we'll be going through uh, Paul's first letter uh, to the Thessalonian church, um, just a, one, one small section, of course. Uh, it's one of the earliest churches written uh, in the New Testament, possibly Paul's first letter. It's either that or Galatians. Um, Thessalonica was the capital and largest city of Macedonia, or modern-day Greece. Um, Acts 17 gives us the historical account of how the church at Thessalonica began. Over a three-week period, Paul was preaching and teaching uh, the gospel in the synagogue, and he was quite successful. Acts 17.4 says it like this, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. The church was established rather quickly, but just as quickly Providence would have Paul and Silas fleeing the city at night for fear of their lives. It was a good church, three out of five chapters, at least in this first uh, letter, taken up with Paul's praise and thankfulness for this church. He lauds their growing faith, and sharing of the gospel. They were spiritually fruitful, and yet Paul still had a call and reason to instruct this faithful church. An initial parallel can and should be drawn from the church at Thessalonica and the church today. That parallel is, and although some may characterize it as cliche, it's, it's also true. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Um, and we, the people of, of the church, never arrive at being followers of Christ. By God's design, sanctification is a constant refining process. God uses ordinary processes or means more often than just simply zapping into existence solutions and fix actions. God's modus operandi is not usually instant action and immediate miraculous heavenly intervention, especially from our very limited earthly perspectives. To be clear, the Westminster Confession of Faith is extremely helpful here. Chapter 5, paragraph 3 says this, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So I'm not saying God cannot or does not or has not acted in immediate miraculous ways, but generally overall does not. Creation, God could have accomplished in an instant, but he instead chose to do so in a seven-day process. The unfolding of the covenant of grace took thousands of years to fully unfold and to reveal. And to reveal. To borrow a recent sermon example, it was at least 14 years from when God formally established the covenant with Abraham and when he memorialized that co covenant through circumcision. The last days we live in since the resurrection is nearing 2,000 years over 727,000 last days. And so it usually is with our omniscient, totally wise, and always faithful God in the process of sanctification. One vital part of this process is our need to be reminded we because of the presence of sin from without and within require constant and consistent biblical instruction. 
And that's exactly what Paul seeks to do here in the text before us to this young and thriving church. A general but central theme of this first letter, and really both letters we have to the Thessalonian church, was the basic idea of living in the last days, of what life looks like for those of us awaiting Jesus' return. And this last chapter, chapter five of the book, is an exhortation. I've chosen to go through the first section of the chapter, verses one through 11, here labeled the day of the Lord, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is refocusing or redirecting our hearts and minds from a worldly perspective on the last days and the day of the Lord to a true spiritual perspective on Christ's second and final coming and how to live in light of that knowledge. Christmas, the celebration um, of the first advent with all the lights and wonderful songs is close at hand. We take time to revel in Christ's incarnation and all that it means for God to become man. The Savior is revealed to live the perfect life we could not live to make the perfect sacrifice we could never make. I'm not opposed to that, and I think it's appropriate to celebrate the one hope of mankind in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before heading into the Advent season, I hope this will uh, help balance us to look at what it means for the church to live while waiting for the second advent, to see our overall perpetual call in the mundane as well as holidays and celebrations. Um, so with that, I would ask if you're able to, to please stand as we read God's word. It'll be uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I believe it's page 1174 in the Pew Bible. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your perfect word. Please help me, an imperfect servant, to expound upon it as well as I can. May it be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. So in this process of redirecting or refocusing our perspective, Paul starts in a very logical and truthful way. Verse one, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. There is no need because Jesus and likely Paul previously in the synagogue while initially planting the church already, um, I'm sorry, like Paul, uh, he already went over it and he addressed this, but it appears some in the Thessalonian church forgot, as many of us do today. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. One commentator put it like this. He said, here's a tip. When Jesus tells us that even he doesn't know something, 
it's probably sensible to stop trying to figure it out ourselves. Paul says that we have no need. We are missing the point if we are focusing on predictions and putting our energy and life into discerning the end times. That same commentator put it this way, we prepare ourselves for the return of Christ, not by predictions about when Jesus is coming, but by the pursuit of godliness. The natural man wants to know exactly when Christ will return. We would love to have that information to control the situation. If anyone knew when, then they wouldn't need faith. They wouldn't need grace. Well, they would absolutely need those things for salvation, but they would be tempted to live and to do everything they wanted, how they wanted, and then have a last moment of repentance before Jesus returns. I think it's obvious that information would be just as corrupting as eating the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. It's a foolish deception and on par with what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Additionally, having that knowledge and information would throw the doctrine of election out the window, and it puts man in the driver's seat, which is clearly unbiblical. Praise the Lord, we don't and can't know when the day of the Lord will be. Praise the Lord, no one knows, and we have no need to know or be concerned about such things. The next two verses, two and three, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. These two verses say a few things. First, Christ's return and judgment are guaranteed, definitive, not going to not happen. It will come, and second, it will be like a thief in the night, which is to say, it will not be expected. Third, it will be too late for those outside the covenant community. Once the trumpet sounds, game, set, match. You ever get that sharp uh, pain in your chest when you realize you forgot about something very important? You wake up to a ringing phone because you overslept for work. Maybe you forgot one of your children at one point, halfway down the road you realize it, and that dread and worry sets in pretty hard. Or possibly the most accurate example of this abrupt and absolute moment would be more like receiving news about the sudden death of a loved one. Those examples and feelings will be but a shadow of the true sudden and unbearable weight of destruction that falls upon the unbeliever. I think Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, describes it best. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then Hebrews 10:31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Speaking of those who go on sinning deliberately and trample underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant and outraging the spirit of grace. Fourth and last thing said in verses two through three, two and three, while people are saying there's peace and security. This probably sounds familiar to you if you're here during Wednesday night Bible study where Pastor Trefskar is going through Ezekiel but it'll also be familiar if you spend time in Jeremiah or Isaiah. False prophets were known for their peace, peace, when there is no peace mantra. Isaiah chapter 30, verses nine through 11, describes this rebellious people as lying children, sorry, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Today's false prophets are no different. 
Satan's lies and tactics have not changed much since the garden. He whispers, you will not surely be judged. God is love, God is peace. God would never judge someone to everlasting torment. But as we know and have seen in these verses, God's word clearly says otherwise. Jesus clearly says otherwise. We read earlier from Matthew 13 where Jesus was explaining the parable of the weeds to his disciples. And he says this, the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Paul, who is seeking to redirect our focus from trying to discern historical seasons and specific dates, has systematically told us that way of thinking has no value, and then gives us a short biblical summary of what we do know about the last day for those found outside of uh, God's grace and mercy. I know that sounds awful if anyone here uh, finds themselves in that position. I just want you to remember it's never too late while you draw breath. It's never too late to consider the terrible judgment that awaits and flee to Jesus Christ. In fact, I beg you to meditate and think upon all that has been said here, and I pray that God will use even this warning to call you unto himself. He or she who has ears, let them hear. Thankfully, that is not the end of the story, is it? The gospel of Christ through the power and saving faith from the Holy Spirit grants true, life-changing hope and desire to please and live for him. And that is exactly where God, through Paul, takes us next in verses 4 and 5. He addresses those found under God's grace and mercy. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Being children of the light means we know the truth. We've been saved from Satan, his power, his lies, the darkness which comes from his false teachings and of the false prophets. Proverbs 4, 18 through 19, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. We've been saved from sin as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that proverb is so appropriate to the context of 1 Thessalonians. It's a neat abstract, if you will, of what we are called to do while we wait for Christ's return as we live our lives before a watching world. Walk the path of the righteous like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day or until the day of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, let us pray and ask God to allow us to shine brighter and brighter until called home or Christ returns. Let us endeavor to that end. Verses six and eight confirms that sentiment and calls us to keep awake and be sober. It is a call to diligent action. Verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here, I believe Paul is saying the same as James. Show me your works. Are we spiritual sluggards? What are we doing? Are we salt and light, or are we tasteless and in the dark? We must act and work against being spiritually apathetic and passing out as one tends to do when drunk. It's almost like giving up and looking for a substance to numb you and put you to sleep just to get through this life. 
What is said here about how we ought to live as we wait for Christ's return is the opposite of simply slogging through, barely getting by, numb and uncaring about spiritual things, about the church and about the souls around us every day. In Pastor Trefskar's recent sermon in 2 Peter about fear, he brought up a Sunday school highlight on sanctification. It was rightly said and emphasized by Pastor, and I'll repeat it here again. Sanctification is synergistic, a cooperative work between God who does all things well and those regenerated, and the response should be diligence. We stress the importance of grace through faith alone, and that is true, but as Calvin and others have clarified, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as heat from the sun warms the earth, and yet the sun is constantly conjoined with light. What a sublime metaphor. The sun, as the cause of heat and warmth, is God granting faith. But there's also a visible manifestation of the sun by the light it grants, as should there be a visible manifestation of salvation on the elect as those found in God's light. The second half of verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Speaking of metaphors, Paul employs the metaphor of armor here to guide our understanding. First, let's state the obvious here. Armor does not put itself on. You can't charge into battle and expect to be protected if you simply thought about putting your armor on. No, we must go through the process of actually putting it on. And Paul, at least as it's written here, assumes this truth in the last portion of verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, for a helmet, the hope of salvation, having already put on. It's a given. And yet, as we see in verses 9 and 10, does not compromise man's utter dependence upon God to save us. The point is this. As diligent soldiers of the cross, awaiting the return of King Jesus, we must, put, we must put this spiritual armor on. This armor metaphor is used frequently by Paul, uh, perhaps de developed it more and more over time, and we see its full expression in Ephesians 6, written approximately 10 years later. Here, though, we get two vitally important defensive sections of armor, breastplate and helmet. The breastplate covers and protects the heart and vital organs. The helmet obviously protects the head. Spiritually, breastplate protects the heart and soul, helmet, the mind and thoughts. So first here, the breastplate of faith and love. Um, I guess John Lennon's famous phrase, all you need is love, is only half-truth. And half-truths are dangerous because they are usually accepted as the full truth. But faith does precede love here in the order given. Fancy that. So before we get to love, let's dive into faith. Faith is foundational and necessary to salvation, to save time at the cost of repeating what has already been said very recently. I commend Pastor Trefsgar's recent sermons on Romans 3 and 4 for a thorough treatment of faith, righteousness, and justification. Quick a summary I can give before attempting to define this faith and the armor. Uh, it comes directly from Galatians 2.16, right? A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, uh, what does it mean to wear the breastplate of faith? Well, my definition, it is a sanctified internal belief system fused to your soul and heart by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This belief system trusts and knows God exists. It believes and knows God rewards those who seek him. It believes and knows God's word and promises will always be true. It's an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11, phenomenal chapter on faith. You don't really know exactly how or why, but you just know and believe these things. You can't find any other philosophy, religion, 
or system that makes sense or brings peace apart from God's word and the gospel. That is faith, and if we can, we shouldn't let a day go by where we don't praise God for that faith, both in ourselves and others, and use it as a protective barrier against sin and the fallen world we do battle with day by day. I believe, therefore, I am. If I am, then he is mine and I am his, and he has promised to never leave me or forsake me. That is protection through the breastplate of faith. If you have faith and believe that, then you have the armor. We must put it on and use it. Now on to the love aspect of this breastplate. There are two parts to this I would like to examine. For the first part, I chose to look at when the Pharisees asked Jesus which commandment was the most important. It's a big deal because Jesus' answer sums up the Ten Commandments and connects them all to love. We know what he said. First, love the Lord your God with your whole being, right? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Followed second by love your neighbor as yourself. Our calling is to be a community of loving people. We are to love God primarily. Then we are to love our spouse, our family, our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our enemies. We've already talked about sanctification and the diligence we are to pursue. The changed heart is diligent to pursue love for God and neighbor. For those within the church, it's worship, prayer, ministry, missions, private exhortation, meals for the sick, fellowship, and coming alongside those in need, both physically and spiritually. On a personal psychological level, this works too. We've all seen this play out. Someone you've cultivated a relationship with, any relationship that you've demonstrated self-sacrifice and genuine care is usually reciprocated, even if it's sometimes fake. It's the one might even die for a good person example, like a moody boss who you constantly look over their weaknesses, strive to point out their strengths, and work as unto the Lord like we are commanded to in Colossians 3. Over time, they develop a respect and appreciation for you because you've demonstrated an ability to show them great grace, even though internally they know they don't really deserve it. They see the beauty of holiness and faithfulness through your living testimony without knowing exactly what it is, but they are enamored with the result, which is ultimately a selfish realization that you do your job well and take care of them. And at the end of the day, their interests are being served. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it will go well for you in general, and by your genuine display of Christian love, you will be protected. And both of these examples in the church and life are good and profitable for our understanding here. However, I'm convinced it really is the love of God, predominantly being spoken about here, that protects his children. The breastplate of faith and love, it says, well, that faith in God's love is what protects and ensures our spiritual safety and well-being. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When under attack in the very worst of circumstances this life has to offer, what will be your hope of salvation? With the breastplate of faith and love in place protecting your heart and soul, the helmet of hope, which protects our minds and thoughts, can now work together when you can't win, when you aren't healing as fast as you would like, when you can't live, when you can't escape, when you can't afford when you just can't, when God says no in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, when facing persecution, being bullied, losing your job, when you witness injustice, when depressed, anxious, angry, sad, frustrated, despondent, struggling with assurance, with the armor affixed, remember God's perfect, absolute, unfailing love. Verses 9 and 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Amid the turmoil and spiritual warfare we face, remember how much God loves you, his child. How much does he love us? Remember, he loves you this much and see him, our Lord Jesus Christ, arms extended out, nailed to the cross on our behalf. You have faith and believe what he says. He says, I love you this much. This is how much you mean to me. This is your real worth and value to me. He lived without sin so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. He willingly submitted himself to excruciating torture and death for us in our rightful place as our substitute. He made us co-heirs, sons and daughters, princes and princesses of heaven. He will give us perfect spiritual bodies. He will wipe away every tear. He'll take away every fear. This is at least partially what the last portion of Romans 8 is saying. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer, a resounding and definitive no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you have faith and hope in Jesus as your savior, if you love him and know he loves you, then you are free from all guilt and condemnation. You are free and called to live your life well for him and you're empowered to do so. If you think about it, the love of God in Christ is why you can peacefully die to self every day. If someone is attacking you personally, cuts you off in traffic, calls you something hurtful, or is flat out rude to you, it is this idea of God's love that can sustain you and keep you holy and peaceful in life's difficult circumstances. It doesn't really matter how another person acts towards you because ultimately you are loved by God and that is the basis for your joy and hope. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt you if God's words and acts of love grace, mercy, and affirmation are truer and more real to you. Your God-given faith, your love, and more importantly, God's love for you will help you remember your hope of salvation is in Jesus when he returns or you go to see him. And you'll truly know what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction was preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison so great we can't even begin to comprehend or describe it. Think about that statement, ruminate, meditate, or to borrow a brother's word, marinate in this awesome heavenly truth. Last day theology is not about the times or modern prophecy. It's about living as children of the light, children of the day who seek the righteous path. It's about staying awake and sober as we wait. It's about diligent actions and living before the face of God. It's about putting on the breastplate of faith and love, a helmet, the hope of salvation, and fighting the good fight against sin, the devil, false doctrine, and false prophets in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the word of God. I didn't choose these verses because I felt there was a deficiency needing to be addressed within our church. From the outset, we noted there is no such thing as a perfect church. It's a simple exhortation, which means, as Pastor Fisher taught us last week and again this morning, to make an appeal or perhaps challenge. Maybe it'll be a reminder about the spiritual armor we need to equip with intentionality and prayer. Perhaps you or someone you know need to be, need to be reminded of God's unfailing and perfect love. I have a story 
about 12 or 13 years ago, I was meeting with both of our pastors at the big house. Uh, no, I wasn't in jail. That's what we used to call uh, the unofficial official name for our old pastoral offices back on Hartford Road before the merger. But I was meeting with both of them. Things were going relatively well with me. Um, but I had this overwhelming sense of judgment and of guilt, and I couldn't get past it. I thought, yeah, I, you know, I, things are going great, but I'm sure to be smited sooner or later, right? Recently, you know, it has to be coming. I don't deserve this. I'm guilty. I know that I'm guilty. I know that I'm a sinner. And I was focusing on those half-truths we spoke about, we spoke about that are dangerous. Praise the Lord. I, I had two pastors that loved me so well and reminded me of, of the other side of the story, of God's um, patience, his complete and perfect patience, and also his love. You know, I, you don't forget that he does love you and he deals very patiently with you. And I'm so grateful for that moment. I remember to this day, and I think it was very pivotal in my, uh, in my in moving, fo moving forward. So um, as Pastor Fisher said, the exhortations are often used for encouragement as it was there. And I hope such is the case here. Be encouraged. We do have the perfect savior who intercedes for us. And we have the perfect helper and the Holy Spirit. Be challenged. We are called to be sober and awake while we wait for our Savior's return. We are called to be, or to live out and be, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we close, I'm truly thankful to be enabled to honestly take the last verse here, verse 11 and apply it to you all, my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Grace Presbyterian Church of Mount Laurel. Although we are not perfect, you do fully depend on Christ as your hope and savior. You are striving to live in the light. You're using the armor of faith, love, and hope. You are being diligent and faithful to your calling. And because of that, I end here and echo Paul's same words to you. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to grow our faith, love, and hope in you. May we be awake and sober as we live our lives for you. Help us to wear the spiritual armor you've crafted for your people so that we may endure the attacks of the en enemy and live in your marvelous light while we patiently await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.